Hi, you're now listening to a sermon from Harvest Community Church in Hoffman Estates, Illinois. We're happy to bring you sermons like this one every week. You can find other sermons at our site at harvest-community.org. So without further ado, here's our speaker. Well, good morning. Um, Again, my name is Stan, and uh, I'm a pastoral intern here at, at Harvest. And uh, this morning, I'd like to share from the passage 1 Kings chapter 19, 9 through 18. That's, again, 1 Kings chapter 19, 9 through 18. And you can turn there if you have your Bible app, or I'll have it up on the screen, too. And uh, the reason why I wanted to share this with you this morning is because I've been reading through this book called Hearing God by Dallas Willard. And it's just been really speaking to me, um, especially in this place that I am right now, uh, just that there's a lot of things that... I'm thinking about and praying about, about discerning what, what is God really speaking to me about in the different areas of my life. And so um, I just wanted to uh, share this with you guys this morning from this passage. So let me, let me read uh, from 1 Kings chapter 19, 9 through 18. And the word of the Lord came to him. What are you doing here, Elijah? Oops. He replied, I've been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, tore down your altars, and put your prophets to death with the sword. I am the only one left, and now they are trying to kill me too. The Lord said, Go out and stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord, for the Lord is about to pass by. Then a great and powerful wind tore the mountains apart and shattered the rocks before the Lord, but the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, there was an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. After the earthquake came a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire came a gentle whisper. When Elijah heard it, he pulled his cloak over his face and went out and stood at the mouth of the cave. Then a voice said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? He replied, I have been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, torn down your altars, and put your prophets to death with the sword. I am the only one left, and now they are trying to kill me too. The Lord said to him, Go back the way you came, and go to the desert of Damascus. When you get there, anoint Hazel king over Abram. Also anoint Jehu, son of Nimshi, king over Israel. And anoint Elijah, son of Shaphat, from Abel-Maholah, to succeed you as prophet. Jehu will put together any who escaped the sword of Hazel, and Elisha will put together any to any who escaped the sword of Jehu. Yet I have reserved seven thousand in Israel, all whose knees have not bowed down to Baal, and whose mouths have not kissed him. All right. So um, the word of the Lord. <laughs> Amen. As some of you know, you know, uh, PD mentioned this before that I also work full time in IT at Walgreens and. Um, and for the, really, I've been there for 13 years. Um, it's actually really interesting. Uh, I actually also knew Hannah from, from college, so it's just, and they, they've been married 13 years, so that just sort of made a connection there. But, but anyways, uh, so I've been working at, at Walgreens uh, for 13 years, and, you know, it's, it's actually been a really good time. I, I really enjoy working there. But for the past year or so, or for the past two years, you know, just things have kind of taken a turn for the worst. Um, and for various reasons, but 
But the project I'm on, the program that I'm on, is, is just, it's always very contentious. People are, are always arguing, and, and people are just really looking out for themselves. And it's just, I don't know about you, but for some of you, I know I talk to you guys, and sometimes workplaces get that way, where, where people are, are just uh, out for themselves and not really thinking about what's better for the whole group. And this is why I actually stayed with Walgreens for so long, is that I really enjoyed working with the people there. Um, the people were just uh, just fun to be around, and uh, they just I really enjoyed that time. And, and most of the time, we were always trying to make things better for all of us, not just for our individual self. And so the question keeps popping up in my mind. You know, every day, every Monday, you know, tomorrow, this evening, you like get ready for work, and you're just like, okay, I got to... Get ready for work again. And the question that keeps popping into my mind every Monday and every day when I'm in a meeting, in a status meeting, and I don't know about you guys if you ever have a status meeting, you sit there and each person goes on and says, okay, this is what I'm doing and this is what I'm doing. And it's just, it's just monotonous, right? And so then I, I question, I'm like, why? Why, God, do you want me to be here at this job? Why do you want me here? And as I ask that question, I feel like this particular passage really speaks to the heart of what God is asking me to do at my job, why he's asking me to be there. And I believe that God is beginning to show me that he works in the everyday, seemingly quiet, ordinary ways of life, and that he's inviting me to participate in his work. Right? So it's just this everyday, kind of sometimes quiet ways that he works, and he's inviting me to participate in it. You know, I don't know if it that doesn't seem really new to most of you, but, but for me it's really changed the, just the whole trajectory of the way I look at Walgreens and the way I look at my work and even the way I look at ministry and even this church. And don't get me wrong, there are days where, you know, again, work is just, it just snuffs that life out of you. You know, I, I don't know, you come, at, come home and all you want to do is just veg, right? But at the same time, I, I, I sense that God is beginning to open my eyes and my ears to hear him in the everyday rhythms of life. And here Elijah also is invited to see God in this way in his life. But before we get into this invitation and working out what happens, let me just provide a little bit more context for these verses. At this point in 1 Kings, Elijah is at a low point. You know, for those who are unfamiliar with Elijah, he was a prophet, right, for the northern tribes of Israel. And at this point in history, this, this northern tribes was, was one kingdom called Samaria. And also at this point in these northern kings in Samaria, there was a king, and the king was named Ahab. And last week, actually, you know, it's pretty amazing how God works. Last week, Pastor Jared also preached from the Old Testament, except from First uh, Chronicles, and talked about uh, Ahab a little bit there, too. And so even from last week, if you remember, King Ahab was not a good king. So here's a description of him from 1 Kings chapter 16. And this is verses 29 and 33. And it says, In the 30th year of Asa, king of Judah, Ahab, son of Omri, became king of Israel. And he reigned in Samaria over Israel 22 years. Ahab, son of Omri, did more evil in the eyes of the Lord than any of those before him. He not only considered it trivial to commit the sins of Jeroboam, son of Nabat, but he also married Jezebel, daughter of Ethbal, king of the Sidonians. And he began to serve Baal and worship him. He's up an altar for Baal in the temple of Baal, and he built that he built in Samaria. Ahab also made an Asherah pole and did more to arouse the anger of the Lord, the God of Israel, than did all the kings of Israel before him. 
So note again, King Ahab did more in the evil in the eyes of the Lord than any king before him. You know, the, the king of God's people is supposed to lead his people to God, right? He was supposed to be a leader who read God's word morning and evening. He was supposed to protect his people. Instead, King Ahab did the opposite. And I don't know about you, but you know, nowadays you read all these news about leaders I mean, on both sides of the party, or even at work. And you just, and unfortunately, this is a, you know, a little bit of confession. Just at work, it's so easy just to, to uh, complain about your managers or your directors or these things. But just imagine, if you will, this, this kingdom, this king who is supposed to be placed God's representative for this nation. And he is literally trying to take the nation away from God. Right? Now, now, Ahab, King Ahab was a bad dude. But the real brains behind the throne was his wife, Jezebel. She was the one who truly pushed this agenda to move Israel to worship Baal instead of God. In 1 Kings 18, it, you know, it's not Ahab that's called out about who is supporting these prophets of Baal, but it's actually Jezebel. And you know, not only that, but she even killed them. Right, just just even pause there for a second. Just think about it. she killed them. She didn't try to throw them in jail or do anything like that, but she actually just flat out killed them, right? And just tried to get rid of them. So here, just to just to kind of recap, right? We have this power couple, you know, King Ahaz and Jezebel. And I don't know. I was trying to think of a way to make it more relevant for us. So I was trying to think of different power couples. I think of Brangelina and Jolie, right? Brangelina, but then. But then Faye told me, my wife, that they're no longer a couple. So it's like, okay, let me think of another one. Uh, you know. So, so maybe, maybe Kim Ye. I don't know if you guys heard of Kim Ye. No? Okay. I, I, I actually, Kim Ye is Kim Kardashian and uh, Kanye West. And so I, that shows how much I follow celebrity news. But, but anyways, just think of these power couple. And instead of ruling the entertainment industry, right, this, this couple rules this northern kingdom of Samaria. And they are intentionally, again, leading the kingdom away from God and towards Baal. Now back to Elijah. So, so God sends Elijah to Ahab to give him notice that you know, God's judgment is coming. And the way he does this is through a famine. right? And so a famine starts. And then three years later, God tells Elijah to go and stand in front of Ahab and to confront him. And he confronts Ahab, with, and Ahab with Ahab is 450 prophets of Baal. Now, I'm not going to get into all the details of this, but this is really just to set up this point in Elijah's story. But there's this huge confrontation, and each side builds an altar. And the prophets of Baal go first, and you know, whoever the altar, you know, when it burns up with fire, that, that altar that belongs to God is God. And so Elijah tells the people of Israel that they have to choose. If, if Baal is their God, then choose Baal. But if the Lord is their God, choose God. And so the prophets of Baal, you know, try to get Baal to set fire to his altar. They do all sorts of things. They cut themselves, all sorts of stuff. Nothing happens, and they do it for a while. And then Elijah steps up, and he just prays a simple prayer. And, and you know, this altar to God, he, he pours water on everything else, and it's just, and as he prays, God's fire just comes down, and boom, the altar just burns up with the sacrifice, everything. And I just kind of imagine, you know, I don't know if you guys, this also sort of dates me, but like Armageddon in the movie, these, these huge fireballs coming down. But it's boom, this altar just explodes. And God's spectacular display of power is shown to the Israelites. 
And so here, after that happens, the Israelites are like, wow, the Lord is God. And then Elijah tells the Israelites to go, and now it's time to, to get rid of these prophets of Baal, and they go and kill these 400 prophets. And so at the end of chapter 18, Elijah is triumphant. God is triumphant. Elijah is riding high on God's spectacular display of power. But then we get to chapter 19, and Elijah tells Jezebel what happens. Remember, she's the one that's been actually, she's the one that's actually killing God's prophets, right? Not Ahab. And so now Elijah gets her full attention, and she sends him a message telling that by this time tomorrow, you're a dead man. You know, I don't know about you, but I feel like sometimes it's, it's like Elijah. We're like Elijah. And Elijah here, after he hears that, he runs away, and he, he tries to escape. And I, I feel like sometimes that could be like us, where we've experienced in the past like just amazing things that God has done. We, we see God work in amazing ways. But then circumstances in life or things like that that happen to us today or it's happened to us in the past, and we, we forget about what God has done. And we only see the circumstances in front of us. You know, I've experienced that as well. And, and there's been a lot of times where just it seems like it's overwhelming uh, what's happening now. But I think what, what God is trying to do with, this and with Elijah in this passage is God is trying to show Elijah that, you know, remind him again that God works in the everyday, seemingly quiet and ordinary way of life. And I believe that's what God really wants to speak to us today. So there are two ways that God shows Elijah this, that how he works in the everyday, ordinary, quiet ways of life. And the first way is God is trying to change what Elijah is looking at. So to change what Elijah is looking at. So here in in verse 9 and 10, we see here that God first asks Elijah this. He's like, what are you doing here? Right? And Elijah answers, I've been very zealous For the Lord God Almighty, the Israelites have rejected your covenant, torn down your altars, and put your prophets to death with the sword. I am the only one left, and now they are trying to kill me too. Now, notice with me that Elijah's description of the situation is not entirely accurate, right? Sure, I mean, Jezebel is trying to kill him, and that part is true, but is he really the only one left? You know, we'll find out later in verse 18 that he's not. And have all the Israelites rejected God's covenant? We saw, you know, as I recapped what happened in the previous chapter, we saw that there were those that joined Elijah in killing all the prophets of Baal. So, so he's not the only, you know, they, not all of them have rejected God's covenant. Right? And, and here it's just, it's just showing that how Elijah, in his circumstances, and, and don't get me wrong, his circumstances are bad. Really. I mean, they're really not good. Right? But, but he's only looking at all the bad things that are going on. And God's trying to remind him that not everything going on is bad, right? And so in response to Elijah's answer, God tells him in verse 11 to stand on the mountain in his presence to see him pass by. God is essentially telling him, hey, stop looking at all the things that are going wrong. You can look at me. He's reminding Elijah that the thing he needs most right now is not to somehow figure out how to stop Ahab and Jezebel and confront them and do all that. But what he needs most right now is to be in the presence of God. Right? And as Christians, you know, as, as I was reflecting on this, I think, especially Christians in our American culture, it's like I, I, I feel like we struggle a lot with self-reliance. And I see that in myself. 
And, I, and, and it's, it's so hard that many times I don't even realize that I'm doing it. Right? Self-reliance is so embedded in our culture that we always have this expectation that if we need to get something done, we, we should just do it ourselves. And, and, and don't get me wrong. You know, self-reliance can get a lot of things done. I mean, it's, it's really nice when it's just you and you have to do it, and then it's just done, right? You, when you have a chance to do it, you just do it. But the danger of self-reliance is we eventually end up like this. And there you go. Like this. This is a picture of Sisyphus. I don't know if, if you know your Greek mythology, but Sisyphus was a king of the city of Corinth, Right? He was punished for self-aggrandizing craftiness and deceitfulness and by being forced to roll an immense boulder up a hill and only for it to roll down when he tries to get it to the top. Right? And the reason I bring this up is just the image that I was thinking of. And different people have different images. Again, you know, my wife, Faye, was helping me, and she was picturing this way of juggling, you know, that we're all trying to juggle. But for some reason, this, this picture really stuck with me. And and the danger of self-reliance is that when, when you're doing things, and sure, it's efficient, you do a lot of things, you get a lot of things done, but over time, sometimes life just throws a lot of things at you all at once. Or sometimes it throws something really big that it's just almost it feels impossible to do. And then we get at a place where we feel like we're just holding up this huge boulder over our head and that we just can't seem to get anything moving. And the tragedy of this, of that in our self-reliance, is that we don't have to be. We don't have to be self-reliant. I think as we follow Jesus, we don't have to hold the boulder up by our own strength. I think it's, we sometimes think that that's the only way to live life, but we can live in reliance on Jesus. And it reminds us of here in Hebrews 4, 15-16, and let me read that for us. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet did not sin. Let us approach then God's throne of grace with confidence, so it may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. And that's the amazing thing, that God, that Jesus, actually understands what we're going through. Right? And it's sort of mind-blowing. It's just even, even that truth that Jesus understands what it's like to sit in a status meeting. Jesus understands what it's like to take care of infant children that are always screaming all the time. Jesus understands these things. And it's not that he himself went through these things necessarily, but he has been tempted in every way, just as we have, but yet did not have sin. And because of that, we can go to him. We don't have to live a life of self-reliance. We can live a life of reliance on him. You know, and, and this is that truth, you know, I just need to be reminded of that every day. And I'm just appreciating Audrey kind of reminding of that for us, even as we're, we were singing praise. Just this reminder of some truths that, you know, we, we all heard this before, right? I, I'm sure most of us in this room have heard this truth before, but it's this daily reminder that we need to realize that we don't have to rely on ourselves, that we can rely on Jesus. So here... You know, God is trying to change what Elijah is looking at, right? But it's not just about changing and looking at the, and seeing what God's presence is, but God is actually telling Elijah something deeper here. And this is in verses 11 through 13. So in 11b, right, 
Here it says, Then a great and powerful wind tore the mountains apart and shattered the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. After the wind there was an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. After earthquake came a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire came a gentle whisper. And when Elijah heard it, he pulled his cloak over his face and went out and stood at the mouth of the cave. Right? Notice that God was not in any of these powerful events. He was not in this huge wind, hurricane force wind. He was not in the earthquake, not in the fire. He was in the gentle whisper. But here, and this is why I spent so much time talking about the context, it's really important to understand the context of this passage. That before, right, when is the last time that Elijah really saw God show up? When was the last time? The last time was when God came in this huge display of power, right? Fire from heaven coming down, striking the altar. And it, everyone was like, the Lord is God, right? And it was this huge thing, and it was a huge game-changing moment. But here, here in Elijah's downness and his depression and in, 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 in his state of like just feeling like everything has gone wrong. God meets him in a different way. God meets him in this gentle whisper. And the, and the thing that's really hard about a gentle whisper is that it's so easily overlooked, right? It, you have to really be paying attention to be able to hear that. And a gentle whisper is, in some ways, it, it's sort of an everyday thing. It's, it's not something that is, is unique or spectacular. A gentle whisper can happen any moment. And that gentle whisper, and this is what God is trying to teach Elijah here, is that you have to be willing to be paying attention and, and not just be so distracted and overlook those moments. And as Christians, I believe it's easy for us to overlook those moments, those everyday moments of God whispering to us. We can look at our day and only see the, just this hundred different things that we have to get done, right? And or, or maybe for you, it's just trying to survive the day. I know that you know, I have good friends that have gone through uh, the, the raising children and the ages, you know, zero to four or five, and you can just see that they're just tired all the time. And maybe, maybe some of you are like that. It's just, it's just about survival, right? Just about survival. But that's the thing, though. If we only look at the tasks that we need to get done, or we only look at just surviving, a lot of those times it's easy to miss those quiet whispers that God is speaking to us. And as we start constantly forgetting about these quiet moments, then our lives start to feel like that, that God is just sort of in the background, sort of, you know, and what's fighting for our attention is all these other things. And then we start to think that our life is boring and mundane because, you know, it, you know it, dealing with kids every day. I, I don't have kids, but I can imagine that dealing with kids every day can just be like, wow, it's just the same thing over and over and over again, right? Or it works work. For me, it, it's, it's work. It's the same thing over and over again. And as we, as if that's the only thing that we look at and, we, and God is fading into the background, then even following Jesus is just an, an addition, a bunch of tasks that we have to get done every week, you know, coming to service or, or CGs or these kind of things, right? And so for me, you know, I was just trying to, what, what do you call this? And for me, I, I just, I can picture this. I call it the Christian doldrums. Um, you know, this is from a book in my childhood, and I was going to look it up, but I didn't have time to. But the Christian doldrums, it's, it's this never-ending, this hills, and each hill is like the last. And as you eventually go over a hill, that, that then is just start up with the next one. And then what, what happens then is that we're, as Christians, 
we're just looking to get through these hills, and we're just looking for every now and then to look for something that piques our interest. Right? Maybe in this thing that piques our interest, maybe it's a new show on Netflix. Maybe it's a new outfit. Or maybe it's these critical requests that are at work and we have to get it done and it, and it feeds our need that we're, we're doing something. Right? But after we're done with those things, we're back in the doldrums. We're back in just the cycle of trying to get through the day, of getting these tasks done. And what that does is it numbs, it numbs us. It numbs our hearts. It numbs us in our relationships. It numbs our relationship to Jesus. But that's the thing, that Christian life doesn't have to be lived in the doldrums. We can start looking for God in those moments that we normally, you know, check our phones. You know, it's just so, it's so easy sometimes. You know, we just, you know I, and I, I catch myself sometimes doing this, where, you know, in those moments you're like, okay, I, I have a little moment to myself. I don't have to do something. Well, what do I do? I just, it's, it's, it's just a reaction. Pick up the phone, look at the news, and then just be disturbed. <laughs> But no, but it's, 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 we're so easy to, to do that. We want distraction to take ourselves out of what's going on in our lives. But instead, I think God has been challenging me, and, and I hope and to encourage you guys that, especially in those moments, instead of picking up our phones and, and seeing what's the latest thing that, that we're interested in, that God is asking us to spend that moment in just quiet reflection and see what, what is God doing in that moment at that time. Or maybe something that just happened to reflect what is God really doing in that moment. There's this quote from C.S. Lewis that I find really helpful, and he describes this. He says, Some years ago, I got up one morning intending to have my hair cut in preparation for a visit to London, and the first letter I opened made it clear I need not go to London. So I decided to put the haircut off too. But then there began the most unaccountable little nagging in my mind, almost like a voice saying, get it cut all the same. Go and get it cut. In the end, I couldn't stand it no longer. I went. Now, my barber at the time was a fellow Christian and a man of many troubles whom my brother and I had sometimes been able to help. The moment I opened his shop door, he said, oh, I was praying you might come today. And in fact, if I had come a day or so later, I, could, I should have been of no use to him. Right? Notice here that C.S. Lewis had this little nagging voice in his mind, right? And if he wasn't there, he wouldn't have been there for his barber. You know, and I guess my point is, like, how easily do we overlook those, that little quiet voice that maybe God is speaking to us? Because there's just so much noise going on in our lives, so many things to get done, the endless task list, this, the surviving that we each go through. And I wish I could get into, like, just talking about how do you know that that voice is really from God and those kind of things. But, but if you're really interested, just come talk to me afterwards and we can have a conversation. But, but really, my encouragement to us today really is just in those moments where you have a little bit of time, those moments where we're just so tempted to distract ourselves, let's instead quietly see if we can listen for what God is trying to say to us in that moment. And I think we'd be surprised at what we'd find. So that was the first way that, that God challenges Elijah to change what he looks at. The second way that God challenges Elijah is to change what, we, what he does, what we do. And here, in verses 14 to 17, you know, and, and a little bit before, God also says again to Elijah, 
This is at the end of 13. Then a voice said to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? Then in 14, God, uh, then Elijah replies, I have been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, torn down your altars, and put your prophets to death with a sword. I am the only one left, and now they are trying to kill me too. The Lord said to him, go back the way you came, and go to the desert of Damascus. When you get there, anoint Hazel king over Aram. Also anoint Jehu, son of Nimshi, king over Israel. And anoint Elisha, son of Shaphat, from Abel Mahola, to succeed you as prophet. Jehu will put to death any who escapes the sword of Hazel, and Elisha will put to death any who escaped the sword of Jehu. So we see here again, God is asking Elijah, what are you doing here? Right, And Elijah actually answers the same way as he did before. But this time, in response to Elijah's answer, God tells Elijah to go back north and do certain things. He tells him to anoint Hazel king over Aram, anoint Jehu king over Israel, and anoint Elisha to succeed him as prophet. Now, what's interesting here is that God doesn't tell Elijah to go and confront Jezebel like he told Elijah last time, right? God told Elijah, you've got to go and confront Ahab to, you know, to set things right with Israel. But God doesn't do that. Instead, God tells him to go and bring other people into this fight. Elijah now isn't the only one left. And God here isn't asking him to do anything you know, super dangerous or spectacular. Sure, he's anointing three different people who, who have positions of leadership and authority, but compared to confronting 450 prophets of Baal, I mean, this is, this is sort of rather tame. And, right, and what God is doing here is that he's, he's not working in this way of just striking down Ahab and Jezebel, like, boom, you know, sudden disease. And you, sometimes, you actually read that in the Bible, that sometimes God does that. But here, God works through humans who are ordinary and flawed. And I think this has been a truth that it's been really ruminating and just in my heart and my mind that I believe that God primarily works through the everyday ordinary ways of life, but to unordinary and life-changing ends. All right. Let me just say that again, that God works through the everyday ordinary ways of life, but to unordinary and life-changing ends. And we may think that reading our Bibles or praying or coming to service or going to CG is, is boring and repetitive. And, and to be honest, sometimes it can be, right? It can be. I, I'm, not, I'm not minimizing that. But it's especially through these ordinary means that God transforms lives into unordinary and unique ways. I, I, in, in this book, Ordinary, and I, I really encourage you guys to pick this up, but there's this book called Ordinary, and uh, it looks pretty ordinary, right? Orange. <laughs> orange uh, covering and everything like this. But, but really, there's this quote in here, and I just feel like it's super relevant for us as Harvest, as a church. And here, here, here's what he quotes. He quotes from this 30-something mom from Texas named Tish Warren, and she says this. She says, A prominent new, new monasticism community house had a sign on the wall that famously read, Everyone wants a revolution. No one wants to do the dishes. My life is really rich in dirty dishes, and diapers these days, and really short in revolutions. I go to a church full of older people who live pretty normal, middle-class lives in nice, middle-class houses. But I've really come to appreciate this community, to see their lifetimes of sturdy faithfulness to Jesus, their commitment to prayer, and the tangible, beautiful generosity that they show those around them in unnoticed, unimpressive, unmarketable, unrevolutionary ways. And each week, we average sinners and boring saints 
gather around ordinary bread and wine, and Christ himself is there with us. I just love this picture that she paints, right? This community that is just a lifetime of sturdy faithfulness, right? This unnoticed, unappreciated, but tangible generosity to one another. And I just want to be clear here that when we live this, this faithfulness lives, this is, not, this is not an excuse to be complacent or lazy, right? Ordinary doesn't, ordinary doesn't mean that I can just go home and my ordinary life is to watch Netflix all evening and eat you know, TV dinners, right? That's not, that's not what God call, is calling us here, not to be complacent and lazy. But what I am saying is that God is inviting us to live a life of everyday faithfulness. It's the moments where we put down our phones and do our daily Bible readings. Right, unless your Bible is reading is on your phone. But anyways, yeah, sorry, that, that, I just, that thought just occurred to me. But anyways, <laughs> but no, but it's, it's the times where we love our spouses when they're not very lovable, right? It's the time where we spend time with our kids. Or we spend time with church members that, you know, just aren't the coolest bunch to be around. We just, you know, we don't have anything in common. And we we choose to do these things not because of the right thing to do, but because that's how we learn how to follow Jesus, right? It's how we learn how to follow Jesus. And I think this this has really been speaking to me. In the end, a, a truly transformed life is a life of continuously learning to follow Jesus in every area of life, right? Just continuously learning how to follow Jesus in every area of life. But then the hardest part of life is the everyday part of life, right? So I just, just want to really conclude with this, this thought, really close with this thought. And I think it's just really amazing that in the end, God finishes, and what he tells Elijah to do is with this statement. He says, yet I've reserved 7,000 in Israel, all whose knees have not bowed down to Baal and whose mouths have not kissed him. And uh, this, if I was in Elijah's shoes, this, this statement would have shocked me that there are still 7,000 people that have not bowed down to Baal. And I, and I think this, this really strikes home, uh, even for me, that God is continuously at work in this world. Right? He is not only working in my daily life, but he's working in your daily lives. Right? In fact, he is working in everyone's everyday life. And because of this is true, there are things that go on in, in our lives that, that we may not even realize that it's been orchestrated by God in somebody else's life. There are so many things out there. It's just truly, truly amazing that God does things that we don't even know that's happening right now, that he could be inviting us in on. And because this is true, I feel like this gives me hope and comfort, even on these Mondays, right, where we have to get up, get ready to go to work, and face another week. And I pray that this also gives you hope for your week. That in, the, in these times where we feel that we have lists of endless tasks that we have to get, in times where we're faced with seemingly insurmountable issues or things that we just feel weighed down by life and by changes that we didn't even expect, that there is still hope because God works in the everyday, in these ordinary ways, to unordinary and life-changing ends.
Thanks for listening to the sermon from Harvest Community Church. If you would like more information or have any questions or comments, check out our website at harvest-community.org. Thanks for listening.